Welcome to The Breadwinners, the podcast about the never-ending hustle and its impact on all aspects of our lives. From our financial life, to our relationships, to our kids, to our health, we're interested in what it takes to keep everything going. This podcast is about women, working, money, and family, and in every episode, we consider the research and share our takes on what we're learning every day about breadwinning. I'm Jennifer Owens. I write about working, wellness, and women and founded the Working Mother Research Institute. And most days, I'm joined by my co-host, Raquel Ellison. But in this special episode of The Breadwinners, I'm joined by Bridget Schulte, whom I first met in our previous iterations uh, when she was writing about all the topics we love at The Breadwinners as an award-winning reporter at The Washington Post, and I was at Working Mother. She went on to write one of my favorite books on breadwinning, Overwhelmed, Work, Love, and Play When No One Has the Time. And today she leads the Better Life Lab at the New America Foundation, where she and her crack team research, advocate, and write about all things work and life. We are very happy to have you join us today, Bridget. Thank you for being on the Breadwinners. Oh, well, I'm excited to be here. And, you know, back at you, Jennifer, you're a you know, force of nature on all of these issues and, you know, have done and continue to do such groundbreaking and pioneering work. I am thrilled to be here talking to you. Well, uh, thank you. So, you know, I was saying before, we usually start with a stat, but I was thinking about this and considering that the Better Life Lab is dedicated to uncovering and amplifying important research about work and life. I thought I'd ask you, like, uh, in leading into talking about the work that you do at the Better Life Lab, like, what numbers are you thinking about right now? What, what's been rattling around for you? Yeah, well, there's a whole lot of numbers. You know, I, I, you know, the first and probably the what's uppermost in my mind right now are the unemployment figures that have come out. And as we all know, these are staggering, uh, uh, staggering yeah. numbers of people who are out of work. You know, uh, we haven't seen numbers like this since the Great Depression. So this is frightening. But then when you look a little bit more closely at the numbers, you see that women are harder hit by this. Um, the, the industries that are hit, uh, women tend to be overrepresented. Women of color tend to be overrepresented. Uh, and I think that this is really one of the things that I really have been watching during this whole coronavirus pandemic is how the pandemic is really exposing the cracks in the system. And this clearly is one when you've got women who are overrepresented in, you know, unfortunately we call them low wage work. You know, what if we, what if we had work that wasn't low wage? You know, what if we just had good work? What if we just had decent and dignified work? What is so hard about that? I think that's one question. Another question is, you know, women are also overrepresented in, in part-time work. Um, you know, and they're also overrepresented in these large companies that have been exempted from uh, being required to offer paid sick days or paid uh, family leave. We, they finally, Congress passed uh, emergency legislation to give people some time to heal and recover or care for themselves or their families without right. having to you know, worry that, you know, they'd have to go to work sick or, you know, leave someone sick at home or, you know, not be able to pay their bills. But they passed these laws with such, you know, with holes you could drive trucks through. Um, so that's really, that's really disappointing. And, you know, I've been doing these crisis conversations, podcasts every week, just trying to really dig into what's happening and what's unfolding. And it is just so clear that, uh, you know, all families, all caregivers are being affected by this, but women in particular, you know, and now people are starting to reopen and nobody's really talking about childcare. Like, hmm, how are we supposed to go back to work? And we're seeing, 
you know, so women are being affected by uh, unemployment, by these jobs that were kind of crummy to begin with. And we're seeing how crummy they were by part time work, by not having supports, by not being um by not being eligible for these, uh, you know, finally these policies, family supportive policies that were supposed to help families and, and so many women can't take advantage of them. So I guess the last number that's kind of going around in my mind, because I'm thinking a lot about work and work culture and how that's, you know, how it's exposing what doesn't work. But also I'm thinking a lot about home and life. And so many of the statistics show that women still carry so much of the burden of physical burden, mental and emotional labor at home. And and there has been some early indications that men think they're doing more and women don't yes, think they're doing yes. much. But I, always will, do. <laughs> I, will, I will say that I think the jury's still out on that. And I think it's going to be really – that's one of the things that I'm, I'm watching very closely because I think that – I don't think we know quite yet what having everybody – kind of uh, working from home and on top of each other and seeing all of the invisible labor that goes on. I'm not sure that we've seen, you know, kind of how that's going to really shake out in the long run. Interesting. Cause it, it really, you know, whenever we would talk about maternity leave, uh, I just, when I would get on my soapbox, I'd say, this is the smallest amount of time. You know, and, and and for a lot of people who have any access to it, you're talking six weeks, eight weeks, so like, we're kind of in our maternity leave of this pandemic. Like it's, it is, I, you're, I can see what you're thinking. Like, even though it seems every day seems like an eternity, <laughs> uh, it's really not that long. It's, we might be at still at the point where we could just regress back into like, say, say the light turned back on and we were all went to back to work. We're all back on the subway and we're not as scared as we think we probably will be once we are. Would any of these lessons that we've learned right now being all trapped at home together, would they stick? You know, I really think that they would. Um, you know, ah. some of the reporting that I've done has been very interesting, um, you know, because a lot of times we talk about public policy. But one of the things that we do at the Better Life Lab, and I know you do as well, is that you can't just talk about policy in a vacuum. It has right. to also be about our cultural expectations, attitudes and beliefs. It also has to be about our workplace cultures and and sort of the formal policies as well as the informal, you know, uh, water cooler culture, so to speak. That's Those are very powerful drivers of our behaviors and our actions. And so yeah. one of the things that I have been really interested and surprised by, you know, when you look at like, who are the essential workers, you know, so many of them are women. And clearly you've got a lot of women who are, you know, the grocery store delivery, you know, a lot of the essential workers, uh, many of them are single moms. So, you know, mm -hmm. that's another thing that the, that the pandemic is really showing is the holes in our systems of trying to support families of different, you know, different makeups, different sizes that we really do need to find a way to support single right. families, single parent families. But the other thing that I think is really interesting that I don't think we've, we, we've seen how this is going to shake out is so many, so many of the essential workers are in the health field, people who are putting mm -hmm. their lives on the line to go take care of people, you know, whether it's in home, you know, home health and you're a home health aide or, uh, you know, childcare, I put childcare workers in here as well. You're putting your yep. life on the line, trying to help essential workers take care of their kids, but also all of the nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, you know, uh, janitorial staff, the doctors, mm -hmm. um, anesthesiologists, ER folks, everybody that's working uh, in health and in, in the health field. And what we have to remember is that that's a really heavily female dominated 
field. And I've talked to right. a lot of families where the nurses are quarantining or the doctors, like the women, you know, they're uh, staying nearby at an Airbnb. They're not seeing their family. So if they're in partnerships, their partners who, you know, many of them are men, they are having to step up in ways they've never had to before. And in conversations with them, it's really interesting. They're like, I am so tired. I don't know why I'm so tired. <laughs> it's like, we know why you're so tired. Welcome really to our lives. So yes. I think that, that we can't, you know, I think the data says one thing, but I think those individual experiences um, where there's exposure in a way there's never been expo- exposure mm-hmm. before. I think it's going to be an open question. Will it be like, you know, the Rosie the Riveters who went to work in the Second World War and we had the Lanham Act, uh, you know, government supported subsidized high quality childcare, you know, we, right. we figured out how to, how it worked. And then, oh, the men are back. Okay. Women go home. You don't need close it off. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Close it up. So I think how we emerge out of this is going to make a big difference to what eventually ends up happening. Well, on a, a good story that I just heard this morning in talking to a company, uh, the, one of the pros of this thing that they've been forced to grapple with is that they just realized how powerful flexible work is. Mm-hmm. And, and talking to their uh, head of HR, and she was saying, you know, we we would have it would have taken us a really long time to get here, but now. Uh, we see that the company, because the entire company is distributed now and yeah. it's working and the company continues to go on. And it, I, I almost started to tear up a little, you know, like, yeah. it's just like there is one of the positives out of this is that we've learned that we can do that. And before that, she said, I don't think we would have ever gotten to this point without being forced to reckon with it. And now we're glad we're here. Yeah, you know, and I, I have to say that that is you're you are you have hit a really important point. I think one of the most lasting changes that we're going to see is how we do, particularly knowledge work. You know, I would yeah. like to see changes in uh, in more the you know the hourly and frontline work. I think that's sort of an open question with uh, all sorts of bigger questions, but there yeah. is no question that the offices people return to are not going to be the offices they left whenever that's going to be. You know, people who have been wanting to do flexible work or wanting to do remote work and have always been told no or managers who've been worried. Oh, my God, if I don't see you, yeah. I don't know that you're working. You know, that, that sort of yep. low-front low environment. Yes. Yeah. I think that there's no doubt that this has uh, that this has really if it not broken the back, but made a huge dent in the American predilection for FaceTime, for long work hours in the office, um, yes. and really for, you know, for a lot of managers and CEOs, you know, what is what is clearly status quo bias? Because the case for flexible and remote work, as you know, because yeah. you've been part of it, it's been made over and over again, the business case, productivity case, work-life balance, health, whatever aspect you want to look at, there is a raft of really rigorous, excellent research that shows this makes sense. And yet companies have been very slow to adopt. And a lot of that is, you know, we stick with what we know, uh, fear right. of change. And, that, and, and you're right, the pandemic has forced people to, uh, you know, to force people to change. And so I think that this has really sped up that process by decades. And what's great about it is that no longer is it seen as sort of like an accommodation for a lesser yeah. worker, like, oh, a right. working mother, oh, a caregiver, oh, they can't yep. be at the office and that's the best. 
to see that the best work actually can take on a lot of a variety of different flavors, you know, in terms of where, when, and how you do it. For sure. Well, now, so my family, uh, my parents live in Ohio and it's starting to come back online and Ohio shut down much earlier than a lot of other States. And so their, their rates are lower. So, you know, now they're kind of playing with what it looks like to, to come back to work. And it's, it's interesting to talk to both my parents in different ways about uh, what they see, but it's what I hear when they start talking about it, because they're, they're covering the new local news is covering what seems outlandish to wit. There is a restaurant, I guess that is, um, uh, hanging uh, clear shower curtains between the tables. Oh my gosh! Really? <laughs> They're both referencing that, you know, like wow. And and but I hear that, and they do too, because they're thinking about it too. But just the burden. We don't know how to tell these companies how to come back, and and you know, not only just restaurants, but offices and like. And you see all this this chatter in our world about what does it look like? Is it staggered yeah. start set? And, and I think it's interesting the way the different, uh, ways people are thinking about how to execute on coming back whenever that is, but also just the burden because we don't have, there's not, there's not, there never is a one size fits all, but, um, I don't know. I just, I, I kind of feel for the, uh, these employers trying to see, trying to look into the future and think about what it would be to be a safe, a healthy, and a productive workspace. I, I, have you been yeah. hearing that a lot too? I, absolutely. And this is where, I, you know, honestly, a real lack of leadership from the highest yes. rungs or whatever in the in this country has really, I think, really hampered businesses because we don't have clear direction. You know, we've got an administration that then contradicts the CDC. The CDC has always been the gold standard for what we should do in terms of putting public health first. We ha- we have an administration that does that it, for some strange reason does not understand the the value of having widespread testing. If we had widespread testing available, we would know where the virus is. We would be so we would be able to go in with our eyes open about how to set up businesses, about how to set up restaurants, who needs to be quarantined, when they can come out, when you know when of those antibodies developed. So we are we are going into this reopening blind, and I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I think that that's too much of a burden to put on businesses, right. you know, and they're, they're, they're being forced to be creative. And I think they're going to be forced to like make some decisions or f- frankly be out of pocket a lot that they wouldn't necessarily have had to have been if we had a proper, you know, public response to a public health crisis. So, uh, you know, that said, I don't think it's too late. We can start testing now, you know, I, but it's just infuriating that we have put everyone in such a position where we're flying so blind. You know, like the whole, you know, claptrap of, of supporting, you know, business and the economy. And, and then you, you, you put these big and small businesses. Okay. Figure it out. Go, you know, yeah. you go, you guys go do it, which, uh, to bring it full circle to all the topics that we love to talk about. It's, I feel the same way about paid leave and paid sick time, especially if it's employee subsidized, you know, for all putting in, one percent of our salary into a pot that then pays for paid leave just like we do with unemployment insurance like that helps business i've never understood why we haven't adopted that 
uh, why, why that's not a give me, you know, that thank well, you. I'll take I, it. And I have to be, uh, you know, again, uh, you know, the, the, these are issues that we, we work on quite a bit. Um, and there's new research that's just come out from the world policy, uh, analysis center. Uh, we've been working with Jody Heyman, the director there on some of this, on getting some of the word out. And this is the exact question that she and I have been asking, because when you look around the world, uh, the United States is one of only 11 countries of all countries that have no, that does not have a national paid sick leave guarantee from the federal government. And there's, you know, as we all know, there's really very good and important public health research that shows the best way to slow the spread of infection is to stay home when you are sick. And in the United States, there are millions of workers who cannot make that choice. And that's unconscionable. So there, there has been this emergency legislation passed to give 10 days of emergency paid leave, which is great. And it's a great start. However, you know, just when we're talking about paid leave, they have exempted anyone who works in a company uh, with more than 500 employees and people with, you know, fewer than 50 can, can opt out, can, can apply to petition to opt out. Oh my God. So that leaves out potentially between 60 and a hundred million workers. And these workers work at places like McDonald's and Applebee's and Target and Walmart and Amazon and all the places that we are depending upon these essential workers uh, to, you know, get us our groceries, deliver us the stuff that we need to survive. So these are the essential workers who do not have the opportunity to choose between staying home if they're sick or, uh, you know, and and still being able to pay their bills. So- Part of the reason, really, as I've looked into this, part of the reason why we do not have paid sick leave in particular, paid family leave is, a, is another thing that I want to come to, but paid sick leave in particular is when you look historically, uh, in a, you know, at the turn of the century, like in the 1930s, the United States really led the world in terms of labor policy, in terms of understanding worker, worker well-being, worker health, worker financial security, you know, security as a key part of business, a uh, key part of economic thriving, as well as 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 leading a healthy, productive, uh, harmonious, tolerant society. They saw that as these were all public goods. What ended up happening is that unions really wanted to have the ability to negotiate uh, for things like paid sick leave in union contracts. And at the time when the, there were so many workers who belonged to unions, that kind mm-hmm. of collection active made, action made sense. What's happened, though, in subsequent decades through a a variety of, um, you know, really deliberate attempts to break unions and break worker power, only 6% of the the private workforce belongs to a a, a union. So there's absolutely no power, which means uh, employers, uh, the the business owners, business class, they have all of the power right now. And... Mm -hmm. It's uh, they they talk about well we don't need a government mandate we don't want a one size fits all you know we don't want to hurt these businesses that can't afford it right now without really seeing first of all it's not a one size fits all it's just common sense and second of all we're not looking at the costs of not having a right. paid sick leave because in a pandemic that those costs I mean look at the loss of life that's yes. not that that's been unnecessary. How can you calculate something like that? You know, and yet, you know, we spend billions on, 
you know, influenza every year and, you know, foodborne illness. And we have good research from the CDC that one in five workers uh, in the food service industries, they go into work when they're sick because they don't have paid sick leave and they can't afford to stay home. So we know the system doesn't work. And the reason that it continues on is for a uh, really conservative ideology that people uh, don't want, don't want government to be involved in, you know, they want small government and they want businesses to be able to have quote unquote flexibility to just kind of trust them to do the right thing. Right. We've been putting together a tracker at the better life lab of what these exempted companies do. And I tell you, if we, if we, <laughs> I would like to be able to trust business, but our tracker shows that you can't. No, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're, if you're left alone to have to, to, to provide these services and benefits policies and the like, it's going to be more expensive anyways. If we're collectively offering supports in, that's one thing that will completely help your business. That, that kind of, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. Well, one of the other things that we found is that, you know, in the world policy, um, uh, uh, uh analysis that's just coming out, is that the most competitive economies that we compare ourselves with, we're the only one that does not have paid sick leave. Most of them, they don't, you know, they don't deny benefits to workers. They finance it, like you say, through a social insurance program, either through, um, you know, some combination of employee, employer and and government funding. It's absolutely possible. And there are plenty of countries, including like the Netherlands, who found ways to cover the informal economy and gig workers, part-time workers, self-employed workers. So there are examples of high-functioning uh, capitalist economies who have figured out how to do this, and the society is better off for it, businesses are better off for it, and so are workers. I, I was heartened in all of the original uh, push for, uh, oh my goodness, we have to do something, the Fed, it's actually going to move on something, that they did include gig workers and, and contractors in in that um well uh in the unemployment insurance uh yeah. the additional thing that, and i thought i does does that seem like it's the first time they've they've included gig workers and contractors in yes freelancers? A- yeah absolutely because the only policy we have right now is the unpaid family medical leave act where yeah. you can get 12 weeks of unpaid leave but the, the, you know, the eligibility is really quite, quite restricted. Uh, you can only a- apply for that kind of unpaid leave if you, if you're a full-time worker, if you've right. worked at the place of your employment for over a year, and if it's of a certain size. So that cuts out about 40% of the workforce right there. Can't sure. even get unpaid leave. So you're right. Uh, the fact that it covered, uh, gig workers, uh, the, this emergency legislation was a, was a, an important step in the right direction. However, let's talk about paid family leave. Uh, the flip side of it is, why do people need paid family leave? For a variety of reasons. If you're a new parent, a new uh, newly born infant or adoptive child or foster child, you need time. You need time to recover and bond. You need time if you've got a sick child. You need time if you yourself are sick. You need time if you need to take care of an, uh, uh, of an elderly parent or a loved one who is uh, sick and ailing. And, and those you can't plan for. You don't know when someone's going to have a heart attack or 
become infected with COVID. You don't know those things. So it's difficult to plan for. There's no doubt about it. But there are there's evidence from just about every country except ours that a system that understands that workers have full lives and caregiving responsibilities is a better system. And the emergency legislation that was passed, uh, the Republican and business lobby came in as they were uh, Democrats fashioned it. The Republican and business lobby came in and just tore these huge holes in it. So the family leave, the paid family leave we have now only applies to people who cannot go to work because their children are out of school or their child care centers are closed. So it's a start. But you can't, if your mother is sick and you need to take care of her, you, you can't right. get paid family leave for that. If you've just had a new child, you, this is not maternity leave for you. And the, uh, on the flip side of it is because there's so much unemployment that's, and so much uncertainty and fear right now, a lot of people that we've been talking to are too afraid to ask for it. You know, they're, yes. they're afraid that somehow they will lose their jobs or there'll be retribution. And, um, we or have spotlighted a, somehow. Yeah, right? that's, that's exactly. my fear, right? It's a Gen X fear. You know, I don't yeah. want to. I want to draw too much attention to myself. Yeah. So we're we're spending this year. Um, you know, we're calling for stories. So we'd love for you or any of your listeners to pitch us or, or contribute to yeah. this. We've got a. We're we're running a series of stories uh, where we're really reporting deeply into. We're calling it the Have and Have Not Project. What does it mean to have access to paid leave, a public paid leave policy, and what is it like when you don't? across the entire life cycle. And so our first piece is going to be coming out soon by a wonderful, um, wonderful writer who, who's written for us before. Uh, and she tracks the story of three different women, uh, three different mothers, one who thought that she was going to go under. And then her firm said, well, you can qualify for this paid family leave. And that's given her, you know, a lifeline, given the family a lifeline. Yeah. And two other women whose firms were too big and they didn't qualify. And one woman has three kids and she's struggling to try to work and homeschool them. Um, she's really having a difficult time. And instead of giving her support, her, her, her firm has put her on probation and said, you're not being productive. You're, you know, you're on yes. notice. You might lose your job. So, so it's really important that we, you know, while we celebrate on the one hand that we finally got through some family supportive policies, it's really important to see how they're not sufficient. And also they're temporary. They're, they're set to expire in December. And now is the time for people to really begin to see how critical it is in their own lives and then in the lives and health of our nation, our society, our sense of who we are as a people. Uh, this is really time to, to really think about what is it that, what is the system that we want to create? Who do we want to be? Uh, do we want to be punitive and continue on to this really grotesque inequality where, uh, you know, in the last 40 years, uh, you know, all of the benefits of productivity have gone to the ownership and capital class. Do we really mm -hmm. want to continue that? Uh, you know, it's time for uh, it's time for us to have a reset about who we are as a people and what we value. Well, and thank you for leading the way with Better Life Lab. I am honest to, to say uh, the work that you guys do, it, it's always thought provoking. It's always, and it's always grounded in real life. That, that's what I always, it, it's, um, you mix the, the academic and, and the depth of research with the how this actually, it is a better life. You know, that we, <laughs> how do we want to be better? It's well named. Good job. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. It's a, we really want to ground the, you know, we really see our role in this work family justice movement 
you know, where we work in solidarity with, with others and everybody has a role to play. And we really see our role as helping to shape the narrative, combining academic research and rigorous data, but, but providing, combining it with story in a way that it's really compelling and people can, can see their own lives in it and really bring these issues to life to, to create that sense of urgency for change and support others who are really doing the advocacy on the front lines, giving them what they need to make the case and also making the case to policymakers. Well, thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for joining us today. We will link to the, not only the Better Life Lab, but also the crisis conversations you're doing. You can, you can listen to them live on Fridays at noon. Isn't at that one, is it? one to one thirty Eastern? One, like one thirty Eastern, but you can also, they're also in the Better Life Lab podcast. That's where I tend to uh, listen to them when they get up to, into my podcast feed and I look forward to them. Oh, that's uh, great. And, well, thank you for joining us today on The Breadwinners. Whether you're a chance or choice breadwinner, we hope you enjoy the time you spent with us and that you'll share your own story at thebreadwinnerspodcast.com or with The Better Life Lab. How are you making it work? We'd love to know. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review it. Let us know what you think about The Breadwinners. Help us tell the stories that mean to most to you. And until next week, keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.